We're dealing with the uh, small topic this morning of hasn't science disproved Christianity? Uh, A very large topic, obviously, and uh, no way that I could possibly get through everything in 45 minutes. Uh, So I want to recommend some really great books. Uh, The first is by the Oxford professor of mathematics, uh, John C. Lennox, entitled God's Undertaker, Has Science Buried God? Uh, if you're interested in reading any of these books, because this is your pressing question, uh, you're, you're wondering how could Christianity be true because of this, we want to give these to you as a gift. So come and make yourself known. We'd love to give you um, a copy of this. That's the first one, God's Undertaker. The next one is an excellent book. It's a new book uh, out by Tim Keller called Making Sense of God, An Invitation to the Skeptical. Uh, it really looks at some of the modern presuppositions that we have that make trusting in God or thinking about God something that seems quite uh, foolish. And um, so I want to invite you to um, read this one as well, Making Sense of God. We have uh, some copies that are available today if uh, you're in that situation and these are your pressing questions. We'd love to bless you in that way. Well, uh, we are on the final message in our series, uh, Are You For Real? And as I mentioned today, looking at the topic, hasn't science disproved Christianity? Uh, Really, when it comes to thinking about this topic... We do live in this age of kind of amazing technological advance. Uh, the Australian of the Year who was announced uh, just a few days ago is Professor Alan Mackay-Smith. And this guy's famous for uh, stem cell research uh, on spinal cord injuries that led to the first instance ever of a man who was a paraplegic. He was a uh, paraplegic uh, Polish air fighter pilot, former Polish air fi- fi- uh, fighter pilot, who was then subsequently... Uh, through this research, uh, able to to walk again. Uh, Pretty amazing stuff. Uh, The Large Hadron Collider under the ground in uh, Geneva, Switzerland, that in 2012 uh, successfully produced evidence of the Higgs boson, or as it's popularly known, the God particle. Uh, We have amazing technology like facial recognition. It's almost standard now. Pilotless drones, uh, increasingly smart smartphones. Uh, something cool that I heard about uh, just this past week was the uh, DARPA Cyber Grand Challenge run by the Defense, uh, Department of Defense in the U.S., where basically they had a $2 million prize, uh, prize pool, and they, these guys developed these cyber hacking bots that basically uh, are intelligent servers that kind of auto-hack computer systems and look for faults and look for faults in their own systems. And these guys were hacking it out together with no human input uh, as part of this challenge. Amazing technology. And it's easy as a result of this technology and all the technological uh, development to wonder, well, is belief in God just irrelevant now? Hasn't science disproved Christianity? Here's a uh, quote from the well-known professor, uh, Peter Atkins. He writes the following. He says, Science, the system of belief founded securely on publicly shared reproducible knowledge, emerged from religion. As science discarded its chrysalis to become its present butterfly, it took over the heath. There is no reason to suppose that science cannot deal with every aspect of existence. Only the religious, among whom I include not only the prejudiced, but the underinformed, hope that there is a dark corner of the physical universe or of the universe of experience that science can never hope to illuminate. But science has never encountered a barrier, and the only grounds for supposing that reductionism will fail are pessimism on the part of scientists and fear 
in the minds of the religious. I wonder how you feel about that. Is there a place for believing in God in the 21st century? Let alone the God of the Bible. I mean, how could you believe in a creator when we know about evolution? I mean, surely no thinking person could honestly be expected to have faith in any religion. What about the ludicrous claims of the Bible, like miracles? Uh, Well, today what we're going to do is we're going to briefly survey some of the common objections to God, first of all, uh, to belief in God. And then we're going to look at why Christian faith, I put to you, is not just plausible, but presents the most compelling explanation of the world around us that we see. So if you're into taking notes this morning, I know some of you are, uh, I've got two kind of brief points, probably not points, more like categories. Uh, The first kind of topic I want to talk about or point is objections to belief in God. And I'm going to look at four common objections. And uh, the second point that I'm going to look at today is evidence for belief in God. And I'm going to look at five what I think are really compelling evidences that lead us to belief in God. So in short, has science disproved Christianity? My answer is no. Uh, rather, Christianity provides the most compelling explanation of the world around us that we see. What I'm going to do is I'm going to uh, read a passage that I'm going to get you guys to keep coming back to. If you have a Bible with you, open it up to 1 John. So that's not John, but 1 John, right at the end near Revelation. It should be coming up on the screen. 1 John chapter 1, verses 1 through to 3. I'm going to read uh, this passage and then pray, and we'll get stuck into our first point. 1 John 1 through to 3 says the following That which was from the beginning which we have heard which we have seen with our eyes which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the father and was made manifest to us That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and His Son, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord, this morning, we want to thank you. We want to thank you that you are the God who is real and who is present with us. You're the God who can be known, and you've made known yourself to us. And Lord, I just pray as we look at this topic that for all of us here present, you'd reveal something of yourself. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, point number one, objection to belief in God. The first objection of, uh, that I want to look at is the following objection. It is... You can't have faith and intellectual integrity at the same time. Surely to have faith is something that you can't really expect thinking people to have. We like to base our belief on things that we know, things that we can be uh, proven, things that we've seen and observed. Surely it's ludicrous for people to have faith and to be thinking people, to have intellectual integrity at the same time. Richard Dawkins writes the following... He says, it is fashionable to wax apocalyptic about the threat to humanity posed by the AIDS virus, mad cow disease, and many others. 
But I think that a case can be made that faith is one of the world's great evils, comparable to the smallpox virus, but harder to eradicate. Faith being belief that isn't based on evidence is the principal vice of any religion. Richard Dawkins goes on to say the following. He says, whereas scientific belief is based on publicly checkable evidence, religious faith not only lacks evidence, its independence from evidence is its joy, shouted from the rooftops. Faith, is it not just ludicrous? Is it even something worse than that? Is it something wicked? Is it preventing people, fooling people into believing things that simply aren't true? Well, according to Dawkins, faith is belief that isn't based on evidence. And surely religion encourages people kind of like to check your brains out at the door. You know, just believe it. Worse than that, maybe it encourages people to be ignorant and therefore it's something that's wicked and something that should be eradicated. But interestingly, one thing that Dawkins fails to to do uh, in this article that he's writing is to present evidence that faith is, in fact, belief that isn't based on evidence. Because Christian faith isn't belief that's not based on evidence. Christian faith is a response to evidence, not rejoicing in a lack of evidence. Let me get you to turn back to that passage that we read just earlier today. This is uh, written by uh, the Apostle John. He was one of Jesus' closest friends. And note how he starts his letter. He says, That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and we've touched with our hands. John's not talking about something out there that's you know, based on believing without seeing anything. He's talking about an actual experience. He's claiming in this moment to be a witness to the facts, a witness to Jesus' death and his resurrection. You see, Christian faith is based upon an event in history that was reported to have been viewed by hundreds of people. It, was based on the, it is based on the birth, the life, the death, and the resurrection of a man that lived in the first century in Palestine, in modern-day Palestine. And many of the details of his life are therefore open to investigation. More than that, many of his claims are theoretically, therefore, disprovable. That's our first objection. Isn't faith, doesn't it involve just kind of checking your brain out the door? How can you be intellectually... Uh, rigorous and have faith at the same time. The second objection is kind of similar to that. And that kind of goes like the following. It's, you're naive to believe in anything that really can't be scientifically proven. Isn't that kind of naive that you would put your trust in things that can't be measured and in some way proven? Uh, these days you'll hear people say things like, I'll only believe in things that can be kind of empirically tested. You know, if you want me to believe in something, show me the evidence. How can you expect me to believe in a God when there's simply no proof? Sounds pretty reasonable. And in our culture, you can make statements like that very easily. In fact, it kind of sounds pretty rational. Well, of course, you know, it's good to have proof and we should be able to prove these things. And clearly there's many people out there that are charlatans, you know, false. There's many fairy tales and there's many legends. And surely it's right to only trust in the things that are testable 
and repeatable. You want me to believe in God? Show me the proof. Where's the evidence? Now, the problem with this statement is that no one actually lives this way. No one. We all believe multiple fundamental truths that are not scientifically provable. For instance, take any event in history. Uh, Historical events, by nature of being historical events, are unique, and they're not open to being repeated. They can't be scientifically proved that they happened. How about your own existence? How do you not know that you're not caught up in the matrix? You know, you might be familiar with the 1997 sci-fi flick, The Matrix, where everyone's kind of in vats, you know, generating energy for robots who have taken over the world. How could you prove that that's not existence as we see it and experience it at the moment? You simply can't. How do you prove the reliability of your own senses? That the way in which you see and view the world is actually accurate and worthy of trust. How do you scientifically prove that? How do you scientifically prove that it's right to have human rights? Prove scientifically that people should be treated equally. You can't. What about justice? What about right and wrong, the things that we uphold in our courts? Prove that they should exist scientifically. Well, you can't. Even prove the statement scientifically, only things that can be scientifically proven and tested are true. How would you prove that? You simply cannot. You see, the problem with the idea that you're naive to believe in anything that can't be scientifically proven is that no one actually lives that way. You simply can't. John Hort says the following. He says, at some point in the validation of every truth claim and hypothesis, a leap of faith is inescapable ingredient. At the foundation of every human search for understanding and truth, including the scientific search, an eradicable element of trust is present. If you find yourself doubting what I've just said, it is only because, at this very moment, you trust your own mind enough to express concern about my assertion. You cannot avoid trusting your intellectual capacity even when you're in doubt. Moreover, you raise your critical questions only because you believe that truth is worth seeking. Faith, in this sense, in this sense and not in the sense of wild imaginings and wishful thinking, lies at the root of all authentic religion and science. Friends, we can't avoid being people of faith. We by nature of being people, have to put our trust in certain things. Not everything that we believe can be proven, and yet it's not irrational to believe it. More than that, it's unreasonable to demand empirical evidence for the existence of God as we don't apply this criteria to most of our very most fundamental beliefs. You see, the Bible teaches that God is not made of physical substance. He's a spirit. Uh, John says the following in John 4.24. He says, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. You can't say, show me the physical evidence for God because he's not physical. The existence of God is logical and compelling, but it's not scientifically provable. It requires faith. But equally, the non-existence of God is also not provable. It also requires faith. 
Well, that's my second objection. Aren't you naive to believe in anything that can't be scientifically proven? Thirdly, and somewhat more brief, is uh, isn't Christian faith or doesn't Christian faith require belief in a literal six-day creation? And this is, uh, has a bit more of a simple answer. And the answer is really, it revolves around the first two chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1 and 2, and how you read them. And some people will read them uh, to say that there's a literal six-day creation. God created the world in six days. Uh, one of the things that happens as Christians read the Bible is Christians work really hard to try and work out what the original authors intended to mean. And a big part of understanding this is genre. What type of writing is it? Now, obviously, we don't read uh, poetry in the same way as we read history. And we don't read uh, a letter in the same way as we read a song or wisdom literature. And the truth of the Bible is that it contains all these different genres. And so Christians spend a lot of time trying to figure out what is the genre of what type of writing is Genesis 1 and 2. And the truth is, it's debated. And not all Christians who read the Bible, trying to understand it as God's word, trying to understand what the original authors meant, agree on this topic. And because of this fact, it's not necessary to believe in a literal six-day creation in order to be a Christian. If your main objection to being a Christian and following Jesus is that you don't believe in a literal six-day creation, you should know that since Christians believe different things, you should spend your time taking a look at Jesus instead and focus on the main thing. Since it's an area of debate amongst Christians that are faithfully trying to read the Bible, don't let it be your objection. Well, that's my third objection. My final objection I'm going to deal with this morning before we move on to evidences uh, for God is the objection that hasn't evolution proved that a personal God does not exist? I mean, hasn't evolution proved it? Don't we understand now uh, evolutionary processes such that belief in God is kind of irrelevant? And even more than that, it's proved that, that God doesn't exist. Well, evolution is kind of that idea that more complex life forms evolved from less complex life forms through this kind of process of natural selection. So kind of a mutation occurs, and it turns out by chance that that mutation was beneficial to that creature. And as a result, over time, that creature thrives while other creatures die out and disappear. Um, God, therefore, the saying goes, is completely unnecessary. Chance explains everything. The problem with this objection, though, is that many Christians believe that God brought about life in just this way. You see, the reason is that evolution describes how things work. It describes mechanism and not who made things. That is, agency. Uh, John Lennox, who I mentioned in his book earlier, has a really helpful illustration. He says, just imagine that you're a primitive man and you stumble across a Ford motor car. And because you're a primitive man, you look at this Ford motor car and you're amazed by it. You're, you're astounded by this Ford motor car. And because you're a primitive man, you believe that the God named Mr. Ford lives inside this motor car and he powers it and makes it go. But over time, as you familiarize yourself with the motor car, you learn more about how the motor car works and you learn the laws of internal 
combustion, and you discover that, lo and behold, Mr. Ford doesn't live inside of this motor car, and therefore you come to the conclusion that not only does Mr. Ford not live inside the motor car, Mr. Ford does not exist. Now, you listen to that, and you think, well, that's crazy. Obviously, Mr. Ford does exist. We know Mr. Ford built motor cars. It's confusing understanding mechanism with agency. It's confusing understanding how, how something works with whether someone else made it in the first place. And that's the problem that many people have with evolution. But some people will object at this point and say, well, doesn't it eliminate the need for a personal God since kind of random chance is involved? I mean, if there's a God, surely he just kind of started the whole process and he's not intimately involved in any way. Well, no, that necessarily doesn't follow either. Just imagine, um, you know, a, a, a kinetic watch. Living with uh, Lungi uh, for many years, he used to have a whole collection of these kinetic watches. And the amazing thing about a kinetic watch is it's a beautiful piece of machinery. What it is, is it uses the random movements of your arm to move the dials within the watch forward, which allow it to be powered. In the same way, a kinetic watch is a beautiful example of how random chance movements of the human arm can be coupled with beautiful design at the same time. You see, the problem is evolution doesn't preclude the existence of a personal sovereign God, not at all. It's talking about mechanism, how things work. And many Christians look at the details of evolutionary theory and the spectacular complexity of life that's developed in a very short period of time, and they see the sovereign hand of God guiding evolutionary processes to create the world that we live in. Well, I didn't want to just pause and look at objections. I wanted to do more than that. I wanted to look at and spend some time looking at evidence for, evidence for belief in God. And in order to do that, I want to introduce you to a concept that you may be familiar with, and that is explanatory power. Um, Explanatory power is the ability of something to explain things that we see. And I think Christian faith has great explanatory power. Uh, If I was to ask you the question, what is energy? What would you say? You know, if you studied physics at school, you might say uh, energy is the capacity to do work. But that's what energy does. It's not what it is. What is energy? You'd have to answer the question, I don't know. What if I was to ask you, What is human consciousness? How would you answer? You'd have to answer the question, I don't know. But you're right to believe in both energy and human consciousness. Why? Because of their explanatory power. They explain the world that we see and we experience. And therefore, you're right to put your faith in them. Energy explains the the way in which things interrelate and work in this world. Human consciousness explains our experience that we're able to understand things and think about the future and details beyond us. And in the same way, I put to you this morning that Christian faith has great explanatory power. It has a great ability to explain the world around us and how we experience it. And I want to give you five examples five evidences that really build uh, its explanatory power. And you could say more, but because of time, uh, I'm going to pause and and limit ourselves to five. The first evidence I want to look at uh, for the explanatory power of Christian faith is just our existence. 
the fact that we exist. Uh, Genesis, the author of the Genesis, in the very first verse of the Bible, says the following. He says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I want to think about a question this morning. How could a universe exist like ours with the specific criteria required for life to exist? You might not have thought about that. How could the universe that we experience exist? How could it come into being? The truth is, the chance is infinitesimally small. Uh, There's things that scientists talk about uh, called resonance or nuclear ground state energy that uh, are required for life to exist. This could only exist within a a rate of error of about one part in a hundred is the room to move before life can no longer exist. But that's the least of the variables. Uh, The numbers, when we start thinking about it, get massive. Carbon is necessary for life. And in order for carbon to exist, there's a thing called the ratio of nuclear strong force to electromagnetic force. Smart guys understand it. I don't understand it. All I know is that in order for that to exist, it must be precise. That rate of force must be precise to one part in 10 to the power of 40. Now, you might not think that's a big number, but one part in 10 to the power of 40 is like firing an arrow from Earth to the other side of the known universe and hitting a small copper coin. Now, you might find that hard to imagine, so let me paint another illustration of what one part in 10 to the power of 40 is like. One part in 10 to the power of 40 is as though if you've got the entire continent of America and you covered it in small copper coins, and then you stack those copper coins from Earth up to the moon, so that's 380,000 kilometers high, and then you repeated it with uh, one billion similar continents as the, America, as the Americas, and then you painted one of those coins red. And you blindfolded someone and said, pick out that red coin. That's a variance of, or a probability of one part in 10 to the power of 40. Infinitesimally small chance, and yet it's not even the greatest chance. There's a thing in the universe that's necessary for life to exist called the rate of entropy. I don't really understand it, but it's something to do with the rate of disorderliness that occurs in the universe. And in order for the rate, uh, for the, the, the universe to exist in a, in a fashion that is able to accommodate life, that needs a precision of, apparently, scientists estimate, one part in 10 to the power of 10 to the power of 123. Now, that number is so small that it's impossible to write out. Why? Because you would have to put a zero on every single particle in the known universe in order to write it. Mind-blowing numbers. But more than that, not just how could this universe exist, but how could a world exist inside such a universe with the requirements for life? How could we exist in a galaxy, a solar system, and a planet so suited for life? With the distance from the sun, the surface temperature, atmospheric gases mix, gravity, distance from the moon, rate of rotation of the earth. It's an infinitesimally small chance. Once you take as a given our universe being the right requirements for life to exist, the chances of our planet existing is a further one part in 10 to the power of 30. More than that, how could we have developed into such complex beings and how could all of this happen in such an incredibly short period of time? You know, this wouldn't be a problem if the universe was infinite in age, but scientists know the universe has a definitive age and they estimate it to be only roughly 4.5 billion years old. 
limited time for all this chance to come about. Currently, there's a popular solution to this problem, and that's to propose a multiverse, to say, well then, therefore, it seems so improbable, it seems impossible, therefore there must have been billions and billions of other universes. The problem with this is that there's absolutely no evidence for that. It's just pure speculation. And I would put to you, it's more logical to say, in the beginning, God created. You know, the cosmologist Arno Penzias says the following. He says, some people are uncomfortable with the purposefully created world. To come up with things that contradict purpose, they tend to speculate about things they haven't seen. You see, Christian faith explains our miraculous existence. And that's my first point. The second thing is more than just our existence, it's that life is purposeful. Why do we feel a great sense that things in the world are not as they ought to be? Everyone feels this. We look out at the world and what do we, what do we see? We see brokenness. We see wars and famine and disaster and suffering and injustice and we, we think, this is wrong. You know, some people choose not to believe in God because of suffering. But behind that is this sense that this isn't right. This is not how things should be. But if all that's out there is physical matter, if we as people are simply complicated series of reactions purely brought about by chance, we are developed organisms that have flourished through survival of the fittest, why don't we look at human suffering and rejoice? Why don't we say things like, well, the species is getting stronger. The weak are being eliminated. Why are we surprised by it? Why do we long for something different? Why do we all search for meaning and purpose in life? We look to find meaning in things like relationships and family and career and education. We act as though life has meaning. Yet without God, objectively, it doesn't. There is no purpose in life. It's just a chance reaction of atoms that has no significance. But Christian faith affirms our sense that life is purposeful. You know, John writes in John 17, 3, he says, This is eternal life, that they might know you, the only God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. You know, the Bible teaches that you exist because God wants to have a relationship with you. And that's his ultimate ends and purpose in the universe, that people would come to know him. Evidence too, we experience that life is purposeful. More than that, we experience that people are precious. Uh, The environmentalist movement kind of really wrestles with this idea of the sanctity of life. If human life is precious, well, why shouldn't animal life be equally precious? That's kind of the argument um, that goes about. And it's a real honest struggle. What gives us more value than animals? I mean, we all sense that human beings are more precious than animals. I mean, I think only pretty radical people would say that animals are more precious or that we're truly equal. But why even stop there? Why stop with animals? Why are humans more precious than any living creatures? Why are we more precious, for example, than mushrooms or any plants? Why? Some would say, well, it's because we're at the top of the food chain. We're the strongest or we're the most intelligent. But if that's the answer, there'd be no reason to care for the weak. There'd be no reason to care for the sick, the disabled, the elderly, 
And yet we all strongly feel that that's our duty. We need to care for people. Um, We developed this idea from, if we develop this idea from the strong eating the weak, it doesn't make any sense at all. Why, why why, Why not continue to live that way with the strong eating the weak? We all intrinsically believe that humans are the most precious things on earth. Why do we believe that? Well, the Bible gives us an answer in Genesis 1.27. It says that, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. You see, according to the Bible, people are precious because God made them precious. He made them in his image. That's my third evidence, but my fourth evidence kind of flows on from there, and that's that good and evil are real. Why do we have this deep sense that things are completely wrong, as in evil wrong? Things like domestic violence, things like sexual assault, or the torture of children, or the Holocaust. Why do we have this deep sense equally that some things are right, like human rights. That's the power of the marriage equality debate at the moment. The power of the marriage equality debate is that it's saying equality matters. It's saying that people should be treated equally and fairly, and we believe it. But why do we believe it? You know, naturalism says our sense of right and wrong evolved, or some other people would say a more sociological explanation, it's just kind of a social construct, benefits our society, but the point is that it's not real. It doesn't really exist. We're just carbon atoms, and there's no such thing as really right and wrong. How can we more than that say to someone, you shouldn't do this or that? We've got no place to say it. We have no purpose And therefore, there's no way that you ought to live. All you're witnessing in any given moment is the interaction of two highly complex chemical reactions. Murder, it's just like getting two fistfuls of carbon and throwing them at each other. It's not right or wrong, it just is. But we don't believe that. We believe that some things are objectively wrong. Tim Keller puts it this way. He says, To hold that human beings are the product of nothing but the evolutionary process of the strong eating the weak, but then to insist that, nonetheless, every person has a human dignity that is to be honored, is an enormous leap of faith against all evidence to the contrary. I think he's right. You see, Christianity explains the sense we have that people are to be treated with dignity because God has made us in his image and he commands it. He says the following, uh, Jesus says the following in Matthew 22. He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. More than that, we expect all people, regardless of faith, whether they're theistic, they believe in God or atheistic, to have a sense of right and wrong because the Bible teaches that God has placed it on our hearts. Uh, Paul writes the following in Romans 2.15. He says, they, that's non-Jewish people, show that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. This is my point. Why do we feel so strongly about right and wrong? Well, is it possible that you're sensing the will of the God who has made you in his image? 
as Tim Keller puts it another way, he says, just like you might use your sense of sight to see a tree, is it possible that your sense of right and wrong is pointing you towards a personal universe, towards God? That's my fourth point, is that right and wrong are real. But finally, my fifth point, and where I want to end uh, this morning, is this, that more than just right and wrong are real, there's hope for us. You see, the Bible teaches that people are not just precious beyond anything else in the world, but also teaches they're broken. You see, right and wrong, it's not just something out there. It's something that's in here as well. And if we take a moment to honestly think about our lives, all of us will come to realize that we take things. We take things that don't belong to us. We take things like time from the workplace. We take things like the honor and dignity that belong to other people. We take things like property and possessions that aren't rightfully ours. More than take things, we say things. Whether it be in our private hidden moments or publicly to other people, we say things that we immediately regret. We say hurtful things. We say false and malicious things. And we even fail to say the things that we should. More than that, we do things as well. We do things that hurt other people. We do things that we're deeply ashamed of. We do things that we should never have done. Brokenness isn't just something out there, it's something in here as well. We even fail to keep our own standards, let alone the standards of the God of the universe. And the Bible tells us to expect this. And Paul writes in Romans 3.23, a verse that's well known to most of you, that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All of us have sinned. Every person is broken. Every person has turned away from God. The Bible teaches that all people, regardless of creed, regardless of belief, regardless of ethnicity, are broken, estranged from God and from one another. But God doesn't just leave us in our sorry state. You know, a verse that was read earlier today is John 3.16. And it says that for God so loved the world, he gave. He gave his only son. He gave his only son that anyone who believes in him shouldn't perish, but might have eternal life. See, the God of the universe is not distant and uncaring, but he's loving and he's just. He sent his son to 
live the life that we should have lived. Live the life that we failed to live. And he sent his son to die the death we deserve to die. Because we've wronged God. And because God is just. And so Jesus, as he lived his perfect life, came to be rejected by every person he'd known and loved. He was crucified in horrible anguish on a Roman cross just outside Jerusalem around AD 33. And three days later, he rose again from the dead, appearing to hundreds of people and making way the possibility of knowing God, enjoying Him, restored relationship, a world that is broken no more. And that takes us full circle back to the passage which we began with. 1 John 1, 1 through to 3. And this is what John says. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. John claims to be a witness to the resurrected Jesus. He claims to have walked with the resurrected Jesus. And I want to invite you here this morning, if you're sitting here and you're someone who, prior to coming here, believed very strongly that science has disproved Christianity, I want to invite you to start a conversation today. Maybe start a conversation with the person who brought you along. Maybe start a conversation with one of the guys on the team. Maybe come along to this course, Introducing Jesus, that's run by myself and my wife, Charlotte, and um, come along and spend some extended time in nutting out your questions. Well, in closing, has science disproved Christianity? No. Rather, Christianity provides the most compelling explanation of the world around us. It explains why the world exists explains why the world is purposeful, explains why people matter, explains why good and evil are real, and explains why there's hope for the future. One may close and pray as the band comes up. Lord, this morning we want to thank you for your word and what a powerful word it is. Lord, we thank you that you aren't distant You aren't just the God of the universe who's removed and uncaring, but you're present and that you care. You care so much that you sent your son Jesus for us. Lord, I just pray that this morning afresh for anyone who's sitting here with genuine doubts, I pray that you would reveal yourself to them pray that you would show them how good Jesus is and the difference that following him makes. I pray you give them boldness to ask their questions and to seek a genuine answer. And for the rest of us, Lord, 
Help us to worship. Help us to worship the one who made it all. In his name we pray. Amen.